0: Flugelbinder create educational programmes to create change for people and planet. Flugelbinder started with Brad and Ian building conservation trips for students due to their love for the natural world. But they soon realised the power of travel to connect young people to global issues. It's through these connections and first-hand experiences that real change can happen. Flugelbinder performs sustainability audits, design and deliver workshops and run sustainable trips all over the world... Educating students about their social and environmental impact. Flugelbinder, changing travel for future generations.
1: Hello there, welcome to JobPod. We've got 40 minutes talking geography. Today I'm talking to Simran Johal about geography in school. Simran, you're a head of geography in a North London school. And you've also created a wonderful blog site which takes us through some of the experiences and some of the advice that you're giving to other teachers on how you set your department up and your ambitions and where things are going. One of the things that I want to do is make sure that we've got the link in there. So we'll put that in with the, with the podcast. When I looked at the about me section, I'll tell you what struck me really. Well, there are many things which we can talk about, but you began your career just as I was retiring from the Geographical Association. So between us, we've got 43 years worth of teaching experience. That's pretty scary, but um, I think it'll give us an awful lot to talk about. I'd I'd like to ask you first, what led you to become a geography teacher?
0: Um, so for me, I was always interested in geography just as a student. Um, I really liked the the fact that every topic was so different and human geography is so different from physical geography, although they're obviously interlinked. Um, so I just found all of our lessons so interesting and quite whizzy. And uh, by the time you really got stuck into something, you're moving on to something different. So that was a huge selling point as a student for me. Um, and then I just sort of carried it on. So I had to pick some A-levels, though I really enjoyed, enjoyed geography, Carrying with that. Same with my degree, I did a BSc in geography. Um, and then when reality hit of what am I going to do after that I just thought well why don't I just share my passion and and have a go at, at secondary teaching and see what happens and next minute you know my career's flying and I'm doing podcasts with the GA it's crazy.
1: <laughs> have you always taught in the same area?
0: Yeah I've always taught in North London um, I obviously did a PGCE which gave me some experience in two different placement schools but outside of that, I've worked in two different schools. And one was in inner London and one was technically in outer London, but it's literally one road away from inner London. Um, but two very different types of students and cohorts. Um, so two very different types of experiences, I would say. Um, but in one, what
1: way? How, how were they different, given that they were relatively close to being in a, in a London school as a them. Mm.
0: Um, one of them was, I would say very inner London-esque, the way it was a new school. Um, It was attracting, it was was in a deprived area, should we say, Um, so the students there were very different and there were lots of issues with things like crime and knife crime and um, very different to what I face down the road in a a more affluent area where students are looking at applying for Oxford and and Cambridge and it's very different clientele of parents and families there. Um, so because of that, the geography and the te- teaching in general is quite different. One school is focusing on behaviour management, the other one's focusing on stretch and challenge. So two different challenges there.
1: That's quite a wide experience already in your career. Is that one of the reasons why you you put yourself out there for for providing CPD opportunities for others? Because you've shared lots of things on that blog site. It's brilliant.
0: Well, thank you. Um, I absolutely love it started off with Twitter. I absolutely love it. I joined about four or five years ago. Um, and it was just great for CPD, for discussions, and I quickly realised that all the people that were sharing were, dare I say, just normal people, normal teachers. I thought, well, I could be one of those, so I put myself out there. Um, More recently, during lockdown, um, there was lots of online CPDs, um, and I think I very quickly realised that most of those events that were happening were run by white teachers predominantly. I think that really made me realise for sure how much of a white subject geography is. So I feel like I'm, I'm really putting myself out there as a British Asian, somebody who isn't white, um, just to show a bit more diversity, something I take pride in myself. Um, so I try to represent a little bit there.
1: It is really tricky, isn't it? Demographically, it, it is a very white discipline. And, and changing that, and when we were aware of this at the GA, I was at the GA for 10 years, and I've read a number of academic articles and they, despite wholehearted and resourced efforts on the part of many people, it's still proving difficult to make that change.
0: I really um, felt that particularly with the GA, that that, that effort was always there. Um, I've, when I first started teaching, I went to the GA conference in my training year and I was hooked ever since. And I definitely noticed more and more diversity and raising the profile off it. Um, and, and more speakers at all of these different events um, who who were of different ethnicities. So I think that was really great, a really good step forward. But the only way we're going to make change is if more and more people um, of, of minority ethics put themselves out there as well. Um, it's about being brave, I guess, as well.
1: I, I was reading some work by Professor Tricia Dale. She's um, professor of Human Geography of Africa. She said that humanity subjects like history or geography in general are alienating for BAME students when taught in schools. She suggested it can become over, can be overcome through a engagement with black or brown communities in cities but but she didn't go into any more detail in the thing that I read so I wondered what your thoughts were on that.
0: Um, I think a lot of it possibly comes down to parents and their attitudes to, towards geography, um, lots of um, BAME or, or ethnic back, uh, families from different ethnic backgrounds feel like a vocational route is better or doing a degree or A-level in um, more traditional subjects and maths, English, science, especially when you've got five different sciences to choose from and take double into account and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I think a lot of it is about changing parents' attitudes as well as um, students.
1: That's interesting you said that because when I was at, at the programme manager at the Geographical Association. I got quite a number of phone calls from parents talking to me about what geography could offer to their child because they wanted to do geography and they weren't sure that there was a future. What can you do with geography was the sorts of questions. I want my son and daughter to go into medicine, law, dentistry. What on earth is the point of geography?
0: Yeah. I mean, I always use the selling point of geography is a bit of everything. You know, you're, you can showcase your literacy skills, showcase mathematical skills, and I sort of take that selling point when I have to do the pitch at parents' evenings and whatnot. Um, but it is there's a lot of it is down to parents, I would say, and obviously making students aware of where geography can take you. You don't just become a geography teacher if you study geography. There are so many different routes out there and, and pathways that can take you.
1: The RGS produced some nice stuff on... Um... Uh, route ways for students after the degrees and
0: yeah.
1: um, it shows that geography is highly employable.
0: And role but modelling as well. Role modelling of, of different um, careers that you can go into and also showing that they're not all white people going into it. We want to showcase um, where it can take you. We need to think about the faces that we're putting forward to students as well.
1: I saw a really interesting thing on Twitter. It's a, a chap called Richard Yaboa. And he's researching into Hackney post-war estates. And it's not mentioned as geography at all, but he juxtaposes two photographs taken from exactly the same point, but with 10 or 15 years difference as the estates have been cleared. And there are so many geographical questions about who lived here, who lives here now, how has the place changed, why has it changed? Some of that geography is not quite drawn out in the uh, in the twitter feeds that i've read but some fantastic stuff about change within the, the local community that might be one of the things that engages people in a different way in geographical studies in perhaps in in london i'm not sure
0: mm. also just raising uh, an understanding of what geography is um the amount of times at parents evenings you'll get parents say oh back in my day geography was just this and just that but there's so much more to it, like you just said, looking at two photos and asking lots of questions about it, that is geography. There's so much geography behind it um, and making it more exciting and relevant for students of today. Um, is a good way to engage students into it.
1: Yeah, yeah I read that in your uh, blog somewhere, that comment. And it resonated with me because when I first started as head of geography, so we're talking the early 1980s. My head teacher wanted me to run a, a session with parents to show them what the new geography was like. And I went to the Geographic Association handbook that was, it was edited by Norman Graves. And there was an activity in there looking at the changing location of iron and steel. So it was, a, it was a location game. And I got the parents to play it.
0: <laughs>
1: and uh, it looks theoretical, but actually when you finish the game, you turn the map upside down and it turned out to be Sheffield. And it explained why the industries have moved from one to another to another to another, and then went. So some of the um, some of the comments I got were, "I wish geography had been like that
0: mm. when I was
1: at school." But I was doing that forty years ago. Um, but the other one was, "Oh, so you're telling us now that uh, our industries are all going to shut? What sort of message is that for your for your children?" Oops. So so I couldn't win. It was it was one of the but it, those opportunities <laughs> were. were were things that we we were doing in those days, but I think some geography still rather stuck. And I yeah. think your, your blog begins to point that out to some people who, who perhaps don't get the opportunity to talk to their colleagues because they might be the only geographer in the school.
0: Yeah, I was just about to say that. The the geography teaching industry is just, just so sparse and there's such a demand and need for geography teachers. I mean, most people out there probably have in their department non-specialist teaching. So it's quite hard to then teach them sort of the pedagogy behind the geography and what they should avoid and when it's not their priority or if it's not their subject. Um, and obviously schools are so busy and times are a limiting factor there.
1: I think it is quite a knotty thing what is geography. Alistair Bonnet's written a whole book about it of course um, and he talks about geography's ambition being absurdly vast. But I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he says it's been more absurd not to tackle that challenge with yeah. young people. It is a vast subject, and there are many people who don't quite grasp what it is and the concepts that underpin it. And, and that's probably why you decided to rejig your geography curriculum. Because on your blog, you talk about the decisions behind why you decided to rejig it. And you said it's been hard but rewarding. So it'd be really interesting to talk us through why you decided to make that change and then what the changes have been and how you've reviewed them as you've gone along.
0: So when I joined my current school, um, that was also a new school. Clearly, I have a thing for new schools. Um, but I joined when they had their first cohort of year 10. So the year 10s were just starting. And that was when we had the new GCSEs that came into place as well. So as well as my priority being Setting up the GCSE, let alone learning what the new GCSE was, I automatically looked at our Key Stage Three and realised this just wasn't fit for purpose. Not just fit to get the students ready for Key Stage Three, but I felt that a lot of it was sort of legacy material. Um, so I sort of set myself a personal agenda straight away to start working on that as well. It was quite ambitious. So over the, the terms and the years, we were t- t- changing our Key Stage Three topics. We're making sure it's in line with the national curriculum, of course. Um, but also meeting the needs of Key Stage 3, uh, sorry, 4, 5 and working with Key Stage um, 2 as well, primary school. Um, I noticed that we didn't have any uh, fieldwork at Key Stage 3, so that was a huge thing I wanted to put into place. I knew knew it was a really important skill to work on and I found that some of the um, sort of case studies were a little bit old as well, so we just needed a bit of a revamp. So, I was focusing on that, and then about two years later, the whole life without levels came into play. So we had to get rid of our level threes, fours, and all sorts, I mean, it's probably the best thing ever to get rid of those. Um, so it was a really exciting opportunity for me and my team to get together and to really think about what exactly we wanted from our key stage three in terms of content, skills, and assessment as well. Throughout our school, uh, we came up with the idea of having big ideas, so key threats, concepts or threads that were weaving through all of our different curriculum areas. So each subjects were different. Um, And when I was looking out there, what other schools were doing, I noticed really bizarrely that every school had something different for geography. Key concepts were just completely different. Um, And that just goes to show all the research behind it because it's really not clear cut in our subject, um, which is quite difficult (laughs) when you've got responsibilities to try and get that into place. Um, But it made for so many interesting conversations with our team of what exactly we wanted, what we needed to focus on, um, and what we would determine as our key concepts and areas. So we came up with five. Our first one was looking at location and places, um, looking at how areas are similar, different, um, where they're located, a little bit of scale in there as well. Our second one was focusing on processes. Um, and I guess touch on stakeholders as well and different opinions. So quite a broad one because it covers human and physical processes there. Our third one uh, looks just at fieldwork, so geographical investigation, so students' competencies in setting up an inquiry and carrying it out effectively. Our fourth one is, um, I guess you could say it's geographical skills, so it's looking at data, it's looking at OS maps, um, scales and on maps and things like that. And our fifth one, is geographical literacy. So not sort of just spelling words correctly, but using the correct geographical vocabulary. So they're sounding like geographers, writing like geographers. Um, so for us, those five, we, te- we sort of link them to our curriculum, either in pairs or um, sometimes we do it on their own. But as you can probably tell, they're very interlinked anyway. When I saw so many of the other schools, I noticed things like globalization, vulnerability, risk, they're all separate concepts but for us they do actually fit really nicely into our categories there. Um, So it's worked really really well. We set that up properly now all of all of that stuff about four years ago I would say Uh, so we've had a lot of time to embed it fully into every single one of our schemes of work. We communicate them really well with parents and students and obviously teachers as well without sort of hammering it down their necks because it's it's not the most exciting part of, of our geography lessons, obviously, um, but they, you know, they have a clear direction of what geography looks like or progress looks like or um, key concepts and skills in geography. And they're quite explicit for students as well. Um, in terms of evaluating the impact, we obviously look at data assessment points. So we work on a couple of specific of those big ideas there and we assess how they're doing and compare them either a year later or maybe a term later. Um, So some really key progress points there, but I'm also really obsessed with uh, student voice. So I do a lot of student voice through uh, Google Forms. It it takes me about a minute to do on showing my homework, upload it for students, and you get instant feedback. So I get about 200 students telling me what they actually think about our curriculum, which is brilliant. Very, uh, not for the faint-hearted, shall we say, but really insightful um, so I've learned a lot about what students liked and maybe didn't like and what they felt they were good at and maybe not so good at in geography as well.
1: You get sort of a bell curve, don't you, I think, of comments. So you have to chop off the top and the bottom end yeah. because you'll get some that just, just hate geography because they just yeah. do. And um, there's only two of them out of the 300. but. Um, Yes, uh, you've got to be a little bit careful with that. But it is interesting using student voice, and and I I think you can gain an awful lot of insight into what the students are thinking. How much does it affect how you adapt your curriculum? If you think that there are things that you want them to do, but they find them difficult, but you think they're important, how do you get around the... Their student voice is telling you, "We, we find this difficult, we don't want to do it, but you're saying this is... This is something I think is an essential part of our geography curriculum.
0: I would say it's about picking out trends. So looking at patterns and trends. So I do almost uh, two separate styles of styles of student voice. So we'll do one on um, sort of just general classroom experience, how they feel like uh, sort of stretch and challenge. Are they getting extra material? Do they grasp what's going on in the classroom, Um, sort of evaluating how they feel about their classroom environment as a whole? Um, which is really great to see and, and take feedback on and talk to our, uh, our members of staff in line management meetings as well as departmental meetings. Um, but also then we get them to evaluate our curriculum. So we say we learned this topic, out of this topic, which one was your favorite lesson and why? Which one did you least enjoy and why? And if they say the one they least enjoyed is, I don't know, a skills-based lesson, then perhaps we'll focus on how, what went wrong and how do we need to sort of make it more exciting for students or accessible for students. Um, but I think you need to look at patterns. You can't just look at one set of student voice and say, oh gosh, we have to change everything for next year. about um, just avoiding those patterns happening.
1: How many are there in your department? Because you say we, um, it, it's difficult if, if we's two and it's difficult if we's 10. Uh, there's got to be some sort of nice balance, I think, where <laughs> it's not quite so difficult to, to manage a group of people with a, into a vision.
0: It's interesting because I come from two very different experiences there as well. In my previous school, um, I was the only geography teacher, really. As an NQT, I didn't have a head of department. And then when I had one, he was there for a couple of months. So I was basically leading it all. Um, And interestingly enough, because I was on my own and I really needed somebody to help me, I got in touch with um, Catherine Owen, which I'm sure you probably know from the chair. Uh, We met on a Ning page and she saved my life when it came to setting up the GCSE because I was also a new school and we did the same spec which hardly anyone else did at the time so she sent me all these resources and gave me so much help so that was amazing but then going to my current school uh we've got I think maybe five or six members of staff but they all have different areas of responsibility so there's not many full-time main-scale geography teachers um I don't think that's a limiting factor we're all passionate geographers and we all know that teaching and learning comes first and everyone cares about geography learning which is obviously works in my favor but I I really do sympathize with so many people out there who don't have that experience and like I said I didn't have that as well.
1: I'd like to talk to you about field work as well because you said when you started there was no field work at, at your school so that's really quite a hard place to start from but I'd also like to tie in that to ask you about local studies as well because you can do an awful lot of field work just either in within the school building or in the school grounds or within a walkable locality without having to think fieldwork means going miles to some coastal location for a contrast. So how did you set up the field work? What was your planning for that? What was your thinking as you as you went from oh we haven't got anything to we want to be a gold standard score here?
0: I think going, working in my first school, um, I realised how much hard work there is behind setting up fieldwork projects and trips and the risk assessments and the letters. And I was very much put off at the time, maybe because I was just new to the profession and I probably didn't expect half the admin side anyway. Um, But we only, at that school, we only had one trip at the time. And I remember thinking, what's the, what's the point? One trip where students are going to go and Walk around, count cars, and come back. I thought, oh, does there, does it really outweigh the positives and negatives? No? They really outweigh each other. I don't know. So one day I came to my second school, and I realised there was no trips. I thought, okay, all I want to do is have li- trips or fieldwork opportunities, little and often. So every year, if they can do at least one type of fieldwork activity, some kind of geographical investigation, no matter where it is. Although I'm very ambitious, I don't think I'm going to be able to take them to the sea every year or a river every year. But if we can do something, listen, and often, that will pay off in the long term, and that will give them enough of an understanding to know that this is a key element of geography and a key skill, not just for their ge- ge- geographical learning, uh, but also for their wider learning of teamwork and leadership and those sort of softer skills that students learn behind it. So um, we set up a local project so doing one of the school building, Um, we've done one on micro climates as well, we've done one on the high street um, for students to go out and it's sort of counting cars, but (laughs) they're only in uh, the first week of year seven by that point. Um, But it's great and we're a split site campus so we looked at how the road was different on our upper school versus our lower school because it's literally a five minute walk away so it's a really good sort of transition project as well for students to see where could they go in the next couple of years so so many different benefits from it um from doing that so by having fieldwork embedded every single year and then that when they got to the GCSEs as well when we were a little bit more adventurous and taking them outside of the local area um they, they just got it so much more and they appreciated it a lot more and they were already raring to go we're really able to practice those skills and get stuck in rather than teaching it for the first time. Um, so I feel like, well, I hope and, and I sort of feel that by the end of their experience at our school, they're able to, to confidently know that the key element of geography is geographical investigation is, and hopefully is a highlight of each and the every year that they have.
1: Did you map back? Because if you look at the, the skills listed, the statistical skills and the mathematical skills listed at GCSE. It's a huge list. Mm. I think it's something like one new technique every, have I got this right? Every week. That's without having to go back and retest whether they understand what a choropleth map is. So it's really hard to put that into just the GCSE. It really needs mapping all the way back to Y7.
0: That's something that we've uh, been working on quite recently. So we've literally mapped out every single skill, every single one that they need to know by the end of the GCSE. And we're trying to put it into both Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4. But I think because there's just so many, we have to work with other departments. So where they learn a skill in maths, how can we get the maths department to help showcase that this is also a skill they do in geography and same for um, science as well in particular. Um, so I think cross-curricular links and working with other subjects can be really beneficial because there's just so many. And like you said, it's not just about teaching it, it's about practising it and going over it. Um, and they add up to a lot of marks. When you actually look at a test paper, GCSE or A-level, they all add up to, to a substantial amount, which could be a grade or even two grades difference for some students. So it really is important.
1: I think it's quite a challenge because it's not just knowing that's a correct lesson, but it's about understanding why that was the best or not the most effective way of mapping the data that you had. So they have to understand them as well as being able to recognise
0: them. It's mm. quite hard. And then it will lead on to more sort of geographical questions, linking from the maps. If they don't get the map, they're not going to understand sort of the question properly. There's a, there's a lot.
1: You've got that list, haven't you, on the blog site?
0: Yeah, so I broke down the list and I've put them into sort of what papers at GCSE they're taught in. But also, just having that list together means that we can break it down and put it into our different topics at Key Stage 3. It's one of those, um, I guess, admin jobs when you have to get spread Excel spreadsheets and put your topic in and then put the different skills in. But once you've done it once, it makes a huge difference.
1: Once you've started to do that and you've got the children's mindset that they're working, not, not strictly to an exam, they're working to improve themselves as geographers, but part of that is that they'll do very well at GCSE and then at A level. Nationally, we're faced with a problem. I I, I saw a a tweet that David Redfern did on, it was only June the 11th, and he noted that uh, A level geography entries fell by 14% this year. That's the second largest subject decrease. And AS entries, well, they're gonna fall anyway, but they fell hugely by 30%. So what are are the ways that you would suggest teachers use? To raise the profile and understand the discipline for themselves and for the parents?
0: I would say a really good starting point if you are looking at increasing your numbers for next year or raising awareness for students of, of what where geography can take you, a really good starting point is the opening speech of the GA conference by Jill Miller from this year so the 2019 to 2021 um, and in that speech she was saying about almost treating it like a business it's about increasing awareness of what is your product is or what you're trying to sell in our in in business terms i guess and then sharing that with everybody that you come across so for us it's about sharing it with parents either in newsletters or what geography actually is or what we've been studying or where we've been going with students it's about role modeling of where it can take you showing real life examples of ex-students having their sort of visuals all over the walls and and re- referencing uh, sort of where these students have gone to um, later on as well um, and just making the curriculum so interesting, thought-provoking and, uh, and much deeper than, than what it, I guess previously has been as well. We're always pitted against history that's unfortunately the way it's probably going to work for a very long time and I feel like we, we get a bad portrayal that history is so rigorous and hard and geography isn't. So what's going on there that makes it feel that way um I would say a massive barrier or when you're comparing the two is that students think because history is very much essay based and there's some exams there's only three essays you write um whereas geography is lots of little questions so I think because of that they, they see it as a limiting factor like you don't really learn that much or go into that much in geography but it's just not the case so when it comes to our lessons we've almost got like the formula of how we loosely uh, how we teach a lesson so we sort of launch into learning, we set up a new a few activities, get them stuck in with something, and then you have a meaty section where either you have a debate or a discussion, or maybe it is just an essay, they do need to do some writing, but there, they can really evaluate different thoughts and opinions of an issue or a country or whatever's uh, we're sort of studying at the minute. Um, and then it helps students think, out, think about what their points of views are. Um, yeah, so I just I think there's just so much more that we can go into in geography than previously um, perhaps you might have done.
1: Do you give them a, a vocabulary? So do so they have a geographical vocabulary that you want to cover in Y7 in Y8 and Y9? So you've got them talking like a geographer um, and they've got these these definitions that you, you cover. Do you give them them as well and say, this is where I want you to be at the end of Y7. You need to be able to use these words effectively.
0: Yeah, we don't give them at the beginning of a topic because I think that can be overwhelming, especially in geography when you just have so many terms. But in every single lesson that we have, we always have our keywords that we refer to or say, it will be great if you can use these words. This is what it means. Let's get speaking like geographers. And then we also focus on the tier two words to make sure that they really understand what a cause versus an impact is. Um, so it means when they're writing, they can really answer the question properly, I guess. Um so we throw them into every lesson and if there is a meaty task that we're doing, like a, a debate or a written task, we we'll say this is a vocabulary we want you to try and use, at least include three of them or four of them. Um, but again, it, it depends on the ability of the class, doesn't it, and the, the learners that you have there, because you'd expect some students to use a lot more, perhaps, or um, selected words, possibly.
1: How do you do modelling then? Because the, the, here's a here's my perfect answer, or here's a, a mid-step. answer how can we improve this one how do you go about doing that with your students
0: yeah our classes are very interesting at my school it's a very broad mix so you could have grade nines in the class then you could have grade fives or aiming for grade fives there as well so when it comes to modelling I think it's so important that you're modelling both of those and you're showing this is what a grade five pushing on six looks like and this is what a top grade eight or nine would look like Um, And the students know which one they need to perhaps focus on first. doesn't mean that they're limited and they can see both. Um, But it's really important to see what the difference is.
1: Do you give them answers to unpick as part of your student voice? Here's one. How can we improve this?
0: Yeah, I love those sort of tasks. I think sometimes we can get bogged down with constant exam pressure, can't we? And we're always wanting to do an eight mark question or a 12 mark question. But you don't need to do that. And we haven't got time to do that. So by doing it a couple of times, it's great. And then in the other times, you could just look at a model answer and just dissect that and talk about that answer a few questions about that, um, which is just as effective and just as important. Um, whenever we have a GCSE um, cohort that's gone through, I know this year is a little bit different, but whenever we've had that, we always record the scripts and use those as model answers. Um, and same with Key Stage 3, every time they do some kind of assessment or classwork, or photocopy or just take a picture of a couple of work, pieces of work to share, either print out, put it on the board and go through it together. So it's such a valuable um, tool to do.
1: That's interesting you said that. One of the um, the activities that we did on the the Critical Thinking for Achievement courses that we were running around the the country uh, was, the idea was we gave the teachers a a number of activities to try. One of them was um, a flat chat activity where they just had a photograph. And in silence, they made comments. And then they could challenge the comments of other students and then they moved from table to table until they finished. On a number of occasions, actually, teachers said, well, I'm going to try this with with a partly done answer. And they're going to, in silence, add bits to it and build the answer as they go. They had all the students uh, contributing to that one. Because the the comments as well were uh, anonymous, students didn't feel pressured when they, when they made a comment that somebody else was gonna think they were silly and they all contributed and it worked really well. They said that the answers that they produced by the end were much more effective because they'd had the opportunity to look at modeling, about modeling for students of different abilities as well, but they worked together on it, which is pretty much what you suggested, I suppose
0: that's great mm-hmm. working together as well they're doing it as a class together they're not just doing it on their own or in a group together perhaps um so it just creates for a different way of doing it i think it's great the critical thinking um sort of project and stuff that's out there it's remarkable there's just so many great ideas that we need to go back to sometimes we feel in education that we need to keep reinventing the world wheel but it's not about that it's about going back to the stuff that's already there and just using it or, or consistently using it there's so many great ideas. I went to a talk actually at the GA conference on critical thinking. It was brilliant. So many ideas.
1: Well, that's interesting you said that because I went. I, I think the, the most effective piece of CPD that I had was given by a chap called Jeff Hammond in the early 1980s. And he said, I never get my children to put their hands up. I tell them what I'm going to ask them. I give them the opportunity to reflect on it by talking to the people that they're sitting next to. I have a plan of my classroom where they're sitting and they know what's happening next. They know I'm going to ask somebody, but I'm not going to ask for the hands up. So I'll ask the girl halfway towards the back for her answer. Um, and she's already thought about it. So I'm not, I'm not jumping down her throat. And even if she doesn't want to answer, I'll say, thank you for thinking about it. I'm going to come back to you later on. And he said, by the time I I've finished, I've, answered, I've asked a question from everybody in the classroom over maybe half a turn. And that was it, I never had hands up again, ever, when I was teaching. And now I think it's called uh, Pause, Pause, Pounce, Bounce, and it's some new, brilliant, whizzy idea. Uh, and I don't think even Jeff Hannon had it first. But yes, things come around, goes around, and we we pick them up again, and they're, they're suddenly a, a whizzy new thing. Okay, I'm gonna ask you, a, a tricky question, though, I think, because leadership in geography is really hard because it's a seriously demanding job. You get faced with, I don't know how you managed when you first went to that school and thought, oh, my goodness, I've got to change the whole of Key Stage 3 because you can't in, in a, a short time. And you've also just finished the most difficult year any teacher has faced with COVID-19, I think. So as a, as a leader as a subject leader, what do you think are the, the, the key things that you might want to pass on to an aspiring head of geography for them to be able to manage that transition?
0: Uh, I, I think judging by sort of the things that I've said already, you could probably tell that I'm quite ambitious. Um, I have huge ambitions for how I wanted, ch- wanted to change the curriculum and different changes I wanted to put in place. So I think that's important. However, being realistic here, you need to make sure these things are can be achievable. Um, so whether that means delegating, if you've got people in your department to delegate to, perhaps it means accepting that some things you won't be able to completely change right now and using resources that are already out there. Don't be afraid of that. If that's what your context sort of means for you and your department means, then that's absolutely fine. Um, when it comes to leading and leadership, I really try to add value to people people in my department we're not just managing we're not just doing things i'm trying to push people and push myself as well um to sort of be the best that you can be um i don't know if it sounds like a bit of a cheesy plug here but the ga are a really great great example of how you can do that um most recently i've won the enhanced um passport award geographical passport award i can't remember the name now but a really great opportunity where you can develop your CPD and now I've done it once I'm now going to start getting my department to uh, sort of evidence and and apply for that. Um, So it's about learning as you go and pushing yourselves and being ambitious but also being very realistic of what you can do.
1: Oh perhaps I should push something now then from Geographic Association, (laughs) I don't know because I haven't checked but have you thought about the the quality mark?
0: Yes so that's definitely next on my list but we're going to do that I think in September or as soon as we know that we can open schools properly. But the Quality Mark is such a great way to showcase things that you've done in your department, to work out sort of what you need to work on or what areas maybe you're not as strong at and get professional help or um, support of how uh, you can achieve those things. It's a really really great tool.
1: I think the questions that it poses are really nice for a group that you want to lead because it's just an impersonal it's an impersonal challenge, but it is a challenge. So how are we doing on this? It is a nice way of looking at which areas that you need to develop, which areas that you're comfortable with and which areas really you've neglected.
0: I think with the leadership in general as well, it comes with a lot of bravery. So you might get that checklist and realize you don't do half the stuff or you don't currently do half the stuff. That's okay. Don't beat yourself up about it. It's about now making it better and now spending the time doing it. and. Generally, when you walk into an average school day, things may not go to plan and projects might fall on deaf ears if you set them up. And that's just what happens. And you have to adapt um, and find out what why it didn't work and why it went wrong and then just roll with it and make those changes.
1: You also do 360-degree feedback on yourself, don't you? Yeah. It's a really daunting thing.
0: Yeah, I think it's quite a corporate thing. I, didn't, um, I looked into it a few years ago and... I read a couple of books on it. I thought, hmm, I'm not sure if I'm ready for this just yet. <laughs> so I did give myself a couple of years after reading it, actually, to probably give it a go. But it's great. So I make an anonymous questionnaire. I pick out exactly the sort of questions or things that I want to find out about myself, I guess. So um, how I am as a leader or do my department feel like they're, when their teaching and learning is evaluated for, by me or the, by the department? Or what do they think of our schemes of work? that we've set up. So, so many different questions and categories that I've put under, uh, put together. We'll put that as an anonymous survey and then my department then go ahead and answer it. And not just my department actually, but people that work with me, like other middle leaders, my line manager as well. Um, and again, it's anonymous, so I don't know who said what. Uh, the biggest, I think the, the hardest thing I found was actually waiting. So wait until the deadline, rather than checking in between, because then you can sort of work out who said what. <laughs> but it's, it's so great, it's a really excellent way to work out what everyone thinks about you or projects and, and the way that you lead as a leader, um, and also to evaluate it against what I thought. So I thought I was actually really rubbish at something and it turns out that people thought otherwise and vice versa as well. Um, so it's a very supportive uh, measure but I think you need to have an effective line manager to sit with you and then evaluate what you need to do next and help you with those next steps. Otherwise, it's just a questionnaire.
1: Well, it is, but it's also it, it also can be quite, like you say, it's quite daunting. So what are the, uh, what are the issues that have caused you the, the most shock? Well, you thought, oh, Craig, I didn't realise I was like that. This is how I've come over. This is asking you to be really honest now, but... <laughs> <what>? <laughs> What have people said and you thought, I didn't think I was like that, I have to change. I
0: can't remember which one I had to change most, probably because I blocked it out of my mind, but I remember <laughs> one that I was quite shocked about, um, and that was the delegating. I've never really taken to delegating like some of my colleagues have done. Um, I think possibly because I'm a bit of a control freak or because I'm just so ambitious, that I know exactly what I want and I want it to be done my way um but then I learned about the different approaches of how to do that so people don't necessarily just want you know you need to do x y and z people want to be told exactly what do I need to do how do I need to do it can I break it down or at least in my department at that time that was sort of the trend that I had and I do have people who are non specialists or um, were trainees at the time as well so it was really insightful for that period of time and then again, you, you repeat the questions year upon year, or you can change the questions. But if you keep doing these sort of opportunities for your team um, to, to feedback on, you can adapt as you go. And I think they really appreciate it as well, because they know that I'm not stuck in my ways and I'm willing to change. And I think it's great modeling of what leadership is as well and how, how to lead.
1: I, yes, I think it's a mark of a good leader that you can recognize that there are different teaching styles that are also effective too, because we've gone through periods in education where you had to do the three-part lesson and and there were teachers who found that really difficult no you've got to do it and now we're not saying that anymore people became a four-part or a six-part or whatever and it's changed but it was very rigid at the time when we went through that and i found some teachers got very very stressed over being told you must teach this way after 30 years of teaching another way, people were then saying, well, you you were wrong. What for all my 30 years? I was wrong. And it was quite, it's that really is difficult. So you're happy with people doing things in different ways. How do you, how do you work out the effectiveness of that? How, how do you reconcile that with, well, I want to do it this way, but they want to do it that way.
0: (laughs) I think you need to work out or not work out. I think you need to, really know the strengths and areas of development of each member of staff in your department um, and then you can work out sort of what the priorities are because if somebody's going to do one thing a little bit differently to how I wanted it then maybe that's fine, maybe it's a strength and maybe we can all learn from that um, and equally maybe they really follow something else to the to the T That that's such sort of good, a good way to, well a good way that they're carrying out a project perhaps so it's give and take, it's give and take. And um, if
1: you're using pupil voice I suppose you can get you can get their opinion too, can't you? So you can follow up on several ways.
0: Yeah. And as a department, one thing I've really worked on the last say two years now is peer review. So whenever we have sort of observations and we don't really do our long observations anymore, but when we have drop-ins in our school, um, I make sure that we're as a department, we're looking at each other's books and we are coming into each other's lessons and we're seeing each other and getting out there. Otherwise sometimes that can be seen as very top heavy when it comes to those monitoring points in schools and, The head of department checks on everybody and that's not what I want at all it's not the culture that I would like to have in our department we all learn from each other we all see our different strengths and yes we're not all going to be perfect but that's also a part of of teamwork
1: I think finally I'd like because it it leads in rather from what you've just been saying I'd like to ask you about the way you see the future of geography and education where do you see the subject in 10 years time where do you see you in 10 years time are you positive about it
0: I think we're at a very tricky time. When we look at COVID and school closures, um, for me I've seen geography as as a really leading subject um, throughout this whole time. So one thing that when we closed schools is I made sure that in our department we didn't teach any sort of destruction and deaths and tectonic activities and all that sort of stuff, partly because I know that in our school we've got students with high anxiety um, and things like that. So when we look at the future of geography, I sort of question how can we make that work together. Um, we could probably link COVID-19 and school closures and the whole pandemic to probably every to- every and any topic in geography, but I don't want us to go back in September and reference it all the time. That's not right as well. Um, that could be overwhelming. It could be triggering for people that have gone through or had experienced deaths in, in their friendship groups or families as well. So in the way of what we're teaching, um, I find it's quite up in the air and I wonder how many geography teachers have had that conversation in their departments? How many geography teachers feel that's important or or as important as perhaps I do? Um, But I think that conversation needs to be had about what we're teaching or how we're going about things. And that might mean some rejigging, but that needs to, I think, start happening. Um, One thing that I feel really passionately about Um, as I've mentioned before but diversity also smashing stereotypes and I think with the Black Lives Matter movement as well we've got such an important role to play in geography so I'm really optimistic that we can we we now have a voice as a department and we have an opportunity to change these different stereotypes of different countries and people and places Um, and for me that's really exciting as a young British Asian myself I really hated it when people would talk about India being poor and India is such a bad place to be. Um, cause it's, it's not all like that. Um, I remember once at parent's evening, a parent said to me, just out of the blue after we're talking about the behavior of my child, she said, do you teach that Africa's poor? And I thought, Oh my God, this has caught me off guard this question, but it's, it's such an important question. It's such an important, um, area of geography that we need to, to smash and, and change. Um, but yeah, so I'm very excited about the, the discussions that are happening out there and that everybody is wants to make an effort, I feel, to um, use geography as a way forward.
1: I think we could have a whole new podcast about misconceptions and how Africa is a country. Yeah. And, um, we were talking earlier on, and, and we didn't mention it in, in, the, in the podcast, but about RAD-AID mm. and the awards for, for the the most ridiculous adverts that promote stereotypes. Uh, The the whole thing needs, as you said, exploding. But I think that's for another day. it has been brilliant talking to you today. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed that one. Um, We will make sure that we've got the link to your blog site because there's some fantastic ideas in there that you follow up that we've just briefly talked about now. So there's a whole raft of things that we can follow up Um, And and people can then go onto the link and and, and read what you're adding all the time. Because the last one I looked at, you'd recently just changed it. So it's a really active blog. So thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mark from the membership team here at the GA. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of JogPod, produced for you by the Geographical Association. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to JogPod on your podcast app. And if you're interested in learning more about what the GA has to offer, head over to our website at geography.org.uk.